This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So let's start with a note about the importance of nuclear deterrence to the United States and to those other countries that have a nuclear arsenal. I copied this just the other day from the US Defense Department website. Nuclear deterrence is a top priority within the US military. It's our single most important mission. Nuclear deterrence is the bedrock of US national security. Our nuclear deterrent underwrites all US military operations and diplomacy across the globe. It is the backstop and foundation of our national defense. So it couldn't be more clear that it is of paramount importance to national security and diplomacy. Um, as of 2021, the department still considers nuclear deterrence its highest priority mission. Um, and then at the end there, America's nuclear triad, if you click on that link, so I'll obviously post the, the PowerPoint or hand it to Grace later for people to uh, have. Um, it describes the immense American nuclear arsenal, uh, land, uh, uh, sea, and in the air. So I think that's the backdrop against which we should uh, analyze the ethics of nuclear deterrence. This is a very important uh, political and moral issue. And very topical, you may have seen in the news just recently, concerns about China having developed these hypersonic missiles that could perhaps deliver a nuclear uh, bomb. And there is, of course, friction, potential friction between NATO and Russia uh, around the Ukraine. So we live in a times in which this issue is of the utmost importance. So let me give you an outline of my presentation today. Uh, I'm going to start with two basic ethical principles, which I think would attract widespread consensus, principle of discrimination and the principle of proportionality. And then we're going to apply those uh, to the obliteration bombing of cities in the Second World War, cities such as Dresden and Hamburg, uh, Tokyo, and then the ethics of the nuclear bombing of cities, uh, famously, of course, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then we're going to turn to the ethics of nuclear deterrence. And I'll be drawing heavily on a document published by the US Catholic bishops in 1983 called The Challenge of Peace, in which the bishops address the question of the ethics of nuclear deterrence. I'll also say something about Pope Francis's opposition to the possession of nuclear weapons. He's, as we'll see, the first pope to condemn the actual possession of nuclear weapons. And then I'll end with what I hope will be a clear, principled, moral case against nuclear deterrence. So that's an outline of the talk. Let's start with two basic ethical principles. First, principle of distinction. So this is a well-established principle in the ethics of war. It's never permitted to direct nuclear or conventional weapons to the indiscriminate destruction of whole cities or vast areas with their populations. The intentional killing of innocent civilians or non-combatants is always wrong. And this is a quote lifted directly from the US bishop's document. So in short, um, the prohibition on bombing civilian targets is simply an application of the well-established and widely accepted principle that it's always wrong intentionally to kill innocent people. There's also a second principle that's relevant to our discussion, the principle of proportionality. Even defensive response to unjust attack can cause destruction, which violates the principle of proportionality, going far beyond the limits of legitimate defense. This judgment is particularly important when assessing planned use of nuclear weapons. No defensive strategy, nuclear or conventional, which exceeds the limits of proportionality is morally permissible. So this uh, principle of proportionality applies to situations where your intention may not be intentionally to kill innocent civilians, but you foresee 
that your actions will result in uh, widespread uh, death and destruction. You have to ask yourself, is my legitimate military objective so important as to justify these foreseen side effects, the collateral damage, if you like, uh, as it's often referred to? And sometimes the answer will be yes, and sometimes the answer will be no. One has to ask, how important is this uh, uh, military target? Are there any alternative ways of destroying it without, uh, as it were, causing many uh, casualties as a side effect of one's use of force? So those are two very broadly accepted basic principles of the ethics of war. The principle of distinction, you must distinguish between the uh, as it were, the unjust aggressor, you're entitled to use force against unjust aggressors. You're not entitled intentionally to kill innocent civilians, non-combatants. And proportionality, you must also be alive to the extent of collateral damage that your actions may cause. Okay, again, lifted from the challenge of peace by the Catholic bishops. What about the bombing of, uh, of cities during the Second World War? There were many instances in which uh, cities were bombed wholesale um, by the Allies, by American and British bombers, particularly Dresden and Hamburg and Berlin. And one of the earliest ethical analyses of this type of action was by Father John Ford, a uh, leading Jesuit thinker. And he wrote this famous essay, The Morality of Obliteration Bombing in Theological Studies. I believe the document is still used in uh, the training of American service people in their ethics education. And rightly so, for it, it was a, a pioneering article. And his conclusion was, applying the principles we've just looked at, discrimination and proportionality, the strategic bombing by means of incendiaries and explosives of industrial centers of population in which the target to be wiped out is not a definite factory, bridge, or similar object, but a large area of a whole city, comprising one-third to two-thirds of its whole built-up area, and including by design the residential districts of working men and their families. So that was the goal, as it were. That was the strategy that the Allies adopted against the Germans. And uh, some people justified the wholesale destruction of even residential areas of German cities on the ground that, well, this old distinction between combatants and non-combatants, between those who are innocent and those who are not, was old-fashioned. It didn't apply to the realities of the Second World War. Some described it as total war. All the Germans are really part of their war effort, so they're all legitimate targets. Well, Father Ford rejected that argument. He said the distinction is still valid. Even if it's sometimes difficult to draw the line between the innocent and not innocent in the Second World War, this is not so much because of the increase in civilian involvement in war efforts, but because of the growing power to attack them. So it, because of uh, the range of bombers, uh, that brings within the sphere of being possible targets whole swathes of German civilian populations. It's not so much that the German civilian population is now all involved in the war. No, it's now that they're much more vulnerable to our attack. The burden of proof, he wrote, is on those who would justify the killing of civilians. And he said lots of civilians are obviously innocent. They're non-combatants. And he, he came up with a very, very long list. I've just given a few examples. Farmers, piano tuners, and I'm relieved to say professors. <laughs> so we're non-combatants, we're not fair game, we can't be intentionally targeted. And in fact, he said non-combatants comprise most of the total civilian population, which he estimates to be around three quarters of the population in the US at the time. And what was the intention of the Allies in bombing these German cities? Well, unfortunately, said Father Ford, it wasn't just to attack legitimate military targets. It was to terrorize the civilian population into submission. That was part of the intention of the British and American war leaders. 
It's impossible to make civilian terrorization or the undermining of civilian morale an object of bombing without having a direct intent to kill and injure civilians and therefore breaching that first principle of discrimination. The Allied leaders, he said, were not thinking in terms of the moral idea of double effect. They weren't saying, we don't intend to kill those German civilians. Our targets are military targets. The deaths of the civilians are an undesired and foreseen side effect. This was revenge. Revenge for the German bombing of British cities like London. You may have heard, of course, of the of the London Blitz. The Germans deliberately targeted cities, civilian populations in London, Coventry, my own home city of Manchester as well. So the intent was clear, to terrorize and to kill innocent civilians. And in addition to it breaching the principle of discrimination, this policy of uh, obliteration bombing was also disproportionate. It breached the principle of proportionality. Even if the deaths of non-combatants had been unintended, he wrote, they were disproportionate. The good of shortening the war was speculative, but the cost was grave and certain. Was the bombing of these industrial centers effective? No, highly questionable whether it had any beneficial effect anyway. And he wrote that what was the effect of the German bombing of London? Well, that was to stiffen British resolve. It didn't weaken British resolve. It was counterproductive in terms of trying to undermine morale. So what was his conclusion then in 1944 about obliterating enemy cities? It's immoral because it involves an intent to kill non-combatants and it's disproportionate and it sets an appalling example to other countries who will take their cue from what the United States and the United Kingdom did. You did it to us, therefore we can do it to you. Let's move next to the ethics of the nuclear bombing of cities. What can be said about that? Well, Father Ford again wrote a short piece, The Hydrogen Bombing of Cities in 1960, in which he again applied the basic ethical principles, this time to the nuclear bombing of cities. Not surprisingly, he concluded that dropping nuclear bombs on cities again breaches both discrimination and proportionality. And if we do not intend to do it again, why are we stockpiling large quantities of high megaton H-bombs? It's clear that the actual intent will be to win the war by wiping out everything in sight. It's not like dropping a nuclear bomb on an enemy fleet at sea where you'll only be attacking the unjust aggressor, the combatants. Um, that's not the same as taking out a whole city where inevitably many, many innocent civilians will be vaporized. So uh, recently uh, there was an exchange of views about the renewal of Britain's nuclear deterrent. Um, we're going to replace, uh, I think it's the uh, missiles on board our nuclear submarines. And it's going to cost a lot of money. And a number of members of parliament were concerned about not only the cost, but the moral legitimacy of retaining Britain's nuclear deterrent. And um, uh, an eminent Oxford professor uh, had a letter in the Times saying, well, look, the Christian tradition is very clear. Um, it allows you to, um, uh, as it were, intentionally uh, kill uh, combatants. And therefore, he gave this example. He said, you know, you could drop an atomic bomb on an island that was populated by enemy soldiers or on the enemy fleet. So I was induced to write a letter in reply saying, well, yes, in theory, maybe you could. But that's not the reality of our nuclear deterrent. Our nuclear deterrent is intended to wipe out cities, not desert islands. If nuclear warfare were thought right, wrote Ford, it would involve a practical abandonment of any distinction between combatants and non-combatants, a basic distinction the church had taught for centuries, and the gains made by Christianity in suppressing the barbarities of war would be lost. And Professor Elizabeth Anscombe, arguably the finest 
female philosopher of the 20th century had something to say about the use of nuclear weapons. Um, President Truman, of course, took the fateful decision to drop the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, the University of Oxford um, invited him to take uh, an honorary DCL. And uh, a rather young Professor Anscombe um, tried to induce the university to withdraw its invitation. She proposed a vote in the university parliament that Mr. Truman not be given an honorary degree precisely because he had dropped nuclear bombs on two Japanese cities. Um, she was unsuccessful. He was given his honorary GCL, um, but she wrote this uh, paper, which is still quite famous, Mr. Truman's Degree, in which she wrote, with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we are not confronted with a borderline case. In the bombing of these cities, it was certainly decided to kill the innocent as a means to an end. And a very large number of them, all at once, without warning, without the interstices of escape or the chance to take shelter, which existed even in the area bombings of the German cities. Choosing to kill the innocent as a means to your end is always murder. Yet, a debate continues on whether the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was morally legitimate. On the one hand, uh, there is this uh, very impressive book by Father, Wis Father Wilson, Miss Campbell of Notre Dame, The Most Controversial Decision, in which he suggests that the dropping of the bomb was the lesser of two evils. It was a necessary choice. But there has been a very pervasive, uh, persuasive response to Professor Miss Campbell from a certain Professor Tollefson, whose name rings a bell. Uh, in the public discourse. More recently, Mr. George Weigel, a very respected Catholic thinker, uh, also defended the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima in the journal First Things, which uh, provoked a reply from yours truly uh, shortly after it was published. So it's really quite remarkable that these very respected uh, Catholic thinkers uh, nevertheless still seek to justify the dropping of the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, when so doing surely is a clear breach of the principle of discrimination and of the principle of proportionality. But nevertheless, the debate continues. Let's turn now then to the ethics of nuclear deterrence. And again, I'll be drawing on that important document, The Challenge of Peace by the US Catholic bishops. Um, so the question for us is, is it ethical to intend and threaten to nuke one or all of another country's cities if that country were to nuke one or all of ours? And that's surely what our policy of nuclear deterrence is based on. A threat that if Russia nukes New York, will nuke Moscow. If they nuke all our big cities, we'll nuke all of theirs. And as I say, the bishops addressed this very important question in that document in 1983. What did they have to say? Well, here's uh, their summary of their conclusions on the ethics of nuclear deterrence. In current conditions, they concluded, deterrence based on balance, certainly not as an end in itself, but as a step on the way towards a progressive disarmament may still be judged morally acceptable. We'll come back to these words I've underlined later. Nonetheless, in order to ensure peace, it is indispensable not to be satisfied with this minimum, which is always susceptible to the real danger of explosion. And there they were quoting uh, a speech by Pope John Paul II, Pope St. John Paul II, to the United Nations in 1982. Secondly, no use of nuclear weapons which would violate the principle of discrimination or proportionality may be intended in a strategy of deterrence. The moral demands of Catholic teaching require resolute willingness not to intend or to do moral evil, even to save our own lives or the lives of those we love. Point three, 
Deterrence is not an adequate strategy as a long-term basis for peace. It's a transitional strategy, justifiable only in conjunction with resolute determination to pursue arms control and disarmament. We are convinced that the fundamental principle on which our present peace depends must be replaced by another, which declares the true and solid peace of nations consists not in equality of arms, but in mutual trust alone. That's all taken from the summary on page two. So in short, you can see the US Catholic bishops thought that nuclear deterrence may be permissible, may still be judged morally acceptable, at least as a transitional uh, step towards multilateral nuclear disarmament. Well, one question, of course, is, but isn't nuclear deterrence really based on a conditional intent to kill innocent people? Um, and that's something the bishops had to grapple with. Aren't these nuclear missiles intended to vaporize millions of civilians, not just military targets? They're aimed at whole cities, aren't they? Probably several warheads aimed at single cities. So in paragraph 179, they said, this complex question has always produced a variety of responses. We've received a series of statements from the US government. And these statements declare it's not US strategic policy to target the Soviet civilian population as such, or to use nuclear weapons deliberately for the purpose of destroying population centers. And the bishops thought these statements responded in principle to one moral criterion for assessing deterrence policy, the immunity of non-combatants from direct attack, either by conventional or nuclear weapons. So it looks as though the bishops were persuaded by the government that, well, it's not the intention of the United States to target the Soviet civilian population as such, or to use weapons deliberately for the purpose of destroying population centers. So this suggested, well, well, maybe the policy doesn't reach the principle of discrimination. Now, what about Pope Francis? He has made opposition to the possession of nuclear weapons a key theme of his pontificate. And we'll look at a few quotations. Uh, the first pope to condemn the possession of nuclear weapons. Time Magazine 2015 noted his opposition was one of his top diplomatic priorities, and it quoted the Holy See's ambassador to the UN. He's recently pushed the moral argument against nuclear weapons to a new level, not only against their use, but also against their possession. Today, there is no more argument, not even the argument of deterrence used during the Cold War, that could minimally morally justify the possession of nuclear weapons. The peace of a sort that is supposed to justify nuclear deterrence is specious and illusory. In 2019, during his visit to Hiroshima, he declared his deep conviction that the use of atomic energy for the purposes of war is today more than ever a crime, not only against the dignity of human beings, but against any possible future for our common home, and that the use of atomic weapons for purposes of war is immoral, just as the possessing of nuclear weapons is immoral. In Nagasaki, he noted that millions of children and families lived in inhumane conditions, and he bewailed the money squandered and the fortunes made through the manufacture, upgrading, maintenance, and sale of ever more destructive weapons as an affront crying out to heaven. In his encyclical Fratelli Tutti, he reiterated the ultimate goal of eliminating nuclear weapons was a moral and humanitarian imperative. In January that year, at Georgetown, Archbishop, now Cardinal Tomasi, described the Pope's opposition to the use and possession of weapons as unambiguous. Opposition to nuclear deterrence can, moreover, be placed on a clear, principled moral footing with potentially widespread appeal. Now, the Holy Father hasn't articulated his case against nuclear weapons in terms of the case I'm going to put before you, but uh, there's no reason at all why he could not do so and, and should not do so. I think it would be a very important um, um, buttress to his opposition to the possession of nuclear weapons. And this case is one that was advanced in a classic text by Professors Finnis Boyle and Grise, 
called Nuclear Deterrence, Morality and Realism, published in 1988. Um, it's a phenomenal book in all sorts of respects, and I can thoroughly recommend it to anyone who's interested not just in the ethics of nuclear deterrence and the ethics of war, but in natural law ethics in general. There are many fascinating insights into natural law theory and into a whole range of issues from um, uh, complicity in immoral acts to the ethics of civil disobedience. It's an absolutely outstanding scholarly achievement. And what is the case that these three very eminent Catholic philosophers developed against nuclear deterrence? Well, actually, it's, in a sense, surprisingly straightforward and surprisingly simple and very, very powerful. We go back to the initial starting point of the immorality of intending to kill innocent people, which many, many people, whether Catholic, Christian or otherwise, would agree with. So it's wrong not only to intend intentionally kill the innocent, but it's wrong to intend to kill the innocent even conditionally. So if something happens, then I will kill an innocent person. If Russia nukes London or New York, we will nuke Moscow. So the notion of a conditional intent, um, not only would it be wrong for me intentionally to murder someone in the street, it would be wrong for me to say, if anybody walks through that door, I'm going to kill them. It would be an immoral intention for me to harbour, even if I never carry it out because no one ever does walk through that door. So immoral intentions are themselves immoral. Policies of nuclear deterrence that are based on a conditional intent to kill innocent people are therefore intrinsically wrong. And I think there's little doubt that the policies of nuclear deterrence around the world are based precisely on that intention to obliterate entire cities and all their inhabitants. And how could the use of nuclear weapons ever satisfy that other principle, the principle of proportionality? The US bishops noted in their document that the use of nuclear weapons, even in a limited nuclear war, and even if aimed only at military facilities, would be devastating to the country as a whole. So it seems then that a very strong case can be made against nuclear deterrence because they breach the principle of discrimination and also the principle of proportionality. So the US bishops, with respect, got it wrong in 1983. Why did they get it wrong? Well, I think they got it wrong because when the US government officials told them, we don't aim them at civilians as such, the bishops misinterpreted that as meaning we don't intend civilians to be killed at all. But the fact you don't aim it at civilians as such doesn't mean you don't intend the civilians to be killed. And a good example of this could be what happened at Hiroshima. So the nuclear bomb was dropped near the military base in Hiroshima. But had it only destroyed the military base, the attack would have been regarded as a complete failure because the intention was to wipe out the whole city. So the fact that your target might be a military target, it doesn't mean that your intention is only to take out that military target. Your intention can be to take out everybody, including the civilians. And surely that was the intention, to terrorize Japan into surrender. So uh, I think that, that the bishops perhaps should have seen through more clearly uh, what the actual intention of the US government was. It was and is to destroy entire cities, not just military targets. And also, I think um, they may well have misinterpreted uh, Pope St. John Paul the Great in his speech to the UN when he said, you know, nuclear deterrence may still be considered. We can go back perhaps to that quotation that I underlined uh, because it's quite an important one. Under point one, 
um, nuclear deterrence may still be judged morally acceptable as a step on the way towards progressive development. Well, that's, that's ambiguous. That can be read in one of two ways. That can be read in the way the U.S. bishops seem to read it, as the Pope, as it were, condoning the possession of nuclear weapons may yeah, may still be judged morally But another way it could be read is to say, well, it may or may not be judged morally acceptable. We just haven't figured it out yet. So it's not a condemnation. It's simply saying the matter is undecided. So those are two possible reasons why the U.S. bishops came to the conclusion they did and with respect should not have done so. So then there you have a clear principle moral case against nuclear deterrence. And um, it seems to me it's a very powerful case. And if we're persuaded by that case, then what ought we to do? Well, what are our conclusions? Uh, one is that nuclear deterrence is immoral, as it's clearly inconsistent with the principle of discrimination, and, and surely presumptively also against the principle of proportionality. The, the, the consequences of using nuclear weapons would be so catastrophic in any reasonable scenario, that it's difficult to see how they could ever satisfy the second principle as well. Okay, so if you're persuaded that nuclear deterrence is unethical, what do we do about it now? And the answer to that is abandon it with immediate effect, immediate unilateral nuclear disarmament. Now that is a very radical position to take, it's a very unpopular position to take, but it seems to me and others that it is required by the application of those basic moral principles. And I'll end by uh, throwing up a list of some sources. So as I say, I'll, I'll pass Grace the, you already have the PowerPoint, but please share it with everybody. Those are some of the materials on which I've drawn and uh, which I hope you will access and enrich your understanding of this very important uh, political and moral issue. So I will rest my case there. Uh, hello, my name is Andre. And uh, first of all, I think you did a, a, uh, a brilliant observation about the uh, immoral, you know, indiscriminate killing of civilians via nuclear weapons. However, I had a few confusions and concerns about your case, and I was wondering if I could state them so you could respond to help clarify here. May I? Sure. Okay. So the first thing is you intention you have said several times that the nuclear nuclear deterrence intention is to kill civilians. However, I'm not exactly sure that's the case, right? Because that is the intent of a nuclear weapon. However, nuclear deterrence is a policy, right? And the word deterrence implies inaction. So is it not true that the intent of nuclear deterrence is to prevent and minimize the usage of nuclear weapons? And we look through history, right? Pretty much since 1945, the intents and the consequences of nuclear deterrence has been inaction. So, which then kind of leads to um, my second confusion about your case, right? Is that you know your framework was is wrong to intentionally kill the innocent, therefore it's wrong even conditionally to kill the innocent. Therefore, nuclear deterrence, since it threatens the killing of innocents, is wrong. However, doesn't the fact that it's conditional fundamentally change those two assumptions that it's always wrong to kill the innocent? Because if we then utilize your logic, does this mean that God is immoral for threatening the Pharaoh of the Ten Plagues of Egypt? Surely conditions have something to do with those two basic assumptions then, right? So shall I repeat the uh, first, there are quite a number of points there. So um, let, let me take the first one. Uh, deterrence is really inaction. Um, and therefore one's not carrying out any acts. Is that right? Deterrence um, is inaction. I would say the intent of a conditional threat is different from the intent of the system itself. Right, so it, it suggested that the intention of a system is different from the threat. Well, the only in, the nuclear missile doesn't have an intention, is my answer. We have intentions, and we intend conditionally 
to use them to kill innocent people. I don't think there's any question that is the basis of the policy of nuclear deterrence. We're saying to other countries, if you take out one of our cities, we'll take out one of your cities. That's a conditional intent to kill innocent people, and therefore it's immoral. Yes, but the immoral intent, right? The, the goal isn't to strike you first. The goal is because uh, you are aware of this, there will be no nuclear strike. Well, the, the motive, we're, we're making this immoral intention with a good motive, which is to stop the use of weapons. Absolutely. But that's, with respect, irrelevant. It, it, that's a kind of a consequentialist argument. Uh, if it's true that we should never intend to kill innocent people, it's no defense to say, but I'm doing it for a really good reason. I'm doing it to stop the bad guys from starting a war. Right? We shouldn't intend ever to do anything wrong, even if that even if the doing of the wrong produced a good consequence. So even if it were the case that dropping the bomb on Hiroshima did shorten the war, did save hundreds of thousands of lives, which is what people like George Weigel argue, it's still wrong because you're doing it by intentionally killing innocent people. So that's the short answer to that, that uh, it's the intention that's wrong. Uh, even if the ultimate goal, the reason we're actually making this threat is to protect innocent people, that doesn't justify the evil intention. The, uh, it, it's, ba it's basic, uh, it's basic uh, ethics, isn't it? That uh, evil should not be done, that good may come of it. Okay, so would it be immoral to physically restrain someone and deprive them of their liberties? Would that be immoral? To, would it be immoral to deprive to someone of... To someone against their will and deprive them of their liberties? Uh, no, because it's not intrinsically wrong to deprive someone of their liberty. Okay. We do it all the time. Criminals, for example. People oh. who are a threat. So we're entitled to, to restrain people who are about to attack innocent so people. Uh, yes, that's a conditional intent to do something good. So if uh, I was a police officer and I said, if I see anybody about to attack anybody else, I will restrain them. That's fine, because the restraining of them itself is a moral act. So intending to do it is also moral. But, in, but killing innocent people deliberately is an immoral act, so intending to do it is immoral. So that includes... Right, so would it be acceptable to kill in self-defense then? Uh, well, firstly, that's a different scenario because... Nuclear deterrence isn't the use of force to resist an attack. Uh, it's more, if you like, to think of it as a, it would be a revenge. It would be, you do this, I'll do that. Uh, so I'm not using it to stop you attacking me. The force isn't being... The use of force, the reasonable use of force in self-defense is ethical. And we can have weapons to stop unjust aggression, right? Uh, and we can stop aggression by combatants, but we can't attack innocent civilians, which is what the nukes are intended and designed to do. Okay, okay thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, my question is on the clear principle of moral case against nuclear deterrence. Uh, does the published stance on retaliation policy absolve the innocence of the citizens residing in potential target cities? For example, if Russia bombs London or New York City with the knowledge that Moscow will likely be targeted, do the citizens have an obligation or an understanding for living in that city that if that is the case for their country, that they should leave or they are likely to be a target? So the, the question is, if people in Moscow know that if Russia takes out New York, Russia will be taken out, that they should therefore leave? Russia. Does it absolve them of the innocence in the discrimination? Uh, no, I don't think it does. I think they're ordinary men, women, and children living and breathing in their city, um, and they are in, they are immune from intentional killing. They have a right not to be intentionally killed. I don't think one can blame them for not going off to Siberia and saying, well, this is probably going to be the safest place because there's nothing to nuke here. Um, no, I, it doesn't convert them into a combatant just because they stay in their homes. They're not engaged in unjust aggression. Therefore, they remain innocent. You know, going back to that clear distinction that Father Ford was, was, um, 
was articulating. In fact, in the Second World War, Winston Churchill <laughs> tried to run an argument like this. He said, well, you know, we may be uh, terrorizing all these uh, German civilians, but if they don't like it, they can leave. You know, it's not our fault that they're being incinerated. They chose to stay. I mean, that's just a kind of a barbaric kind <laughs> of morality, it seems to me. So it doesn't Please me to say, as a former fellow of Churchill College, Cambridge, it doesn't give me any delight in saying that Winston Churchill, you know, authorised this murderous attack on innocent German civilians. Um, and I don't think there's any room at all, and we should have no truck with that kind of mentality that says, well, they can just leave their city if they like. No, I mean, uh, we shouldn't be intentionally killing them. It's our fault, not theirs. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Gruden's question. So say I'm convinced by this and then I'm elected president. Mm -hmm. um, and But the, the JP2 quote really sticks with me. Um, so I have no intention whatsoever um, to use nuclear weapons. And I'm perhaps convinced that I think I should uh, do some behind the scenes work to move down the escalator or de escalator or at least start moving down the stockpiles. But I might think it's very, it would be very imprudent for me to publish this, really, to get on the web, get on the Department of State website and say we're changing our policy, right? So, I mean, uh, would the intention, I guess, what's, would my intention be changed? I mean, so I would, so let's say I, for all practical purposes, change, don't uh, publish anything, but I legitimately have no intention of using uh, nuclear weapons. But it seems that the policies of my, my policy is still one of deterrence, right? Because I'm not coming out with this. Would that be an immoral? Well, if if you were the president and you 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 decided I'm never going to authorize the use of nuclear weapons, um, and there's some uh, some say that that was Ronald Reagan's position that he said he would never actually use them. Um, there's still a problem, which is that you're the president. And everybody beneath you uh, is ready to use them at your command. And so even though you may not have any moral intention, they still do. And you're their commander in chief. And they think you are authorizing or may authorize the use of nuclear weapons. So by your posture, by your silence, you are maintaining in them the immoral intention to use the weapons, that conditional intention. So the only way to stop that is to say, our policy is now we will never use these. Right? It's not, I don't think it's a defense for you privately to have the intention to say, okay, I'm the boss. I've not got the intention. Because everybody else in the hierarchy, in the pyramid, down to the submarine commanders, still has it, and you're still allowing them to have it. It's still an immoral policy that you as commander of chief are presiding over. No? And so, and so, your responsibility is to, as it were, say to everybody, let's stop having this immoral intention um, by abandoning the deterrent. That answer may apply to what I was going to ask. I was going to ask: Is there a necessary equivalence between possession and intent to use? Because the example I would use is I could go and buy a firearm and keep it locked up and throw away the key in my house and never ever intend to use it, but just display a sign in my window that says firearm inside. Mm -hmm. And that would, I would never have the immoral intention of using it, but it would act as a deterrent. So would that be a moral situation? And do you think that's applicable at all to any sort of feasible nuclear deterrence policy? I, so w the question is, couldn't a person just buy a gun and lock it in a cupboard and put a notice in the window saying, gun inside? Right. Although, even though you never intended to use it. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure that yeah. um, possession, I think it's, I'm asking, is it possible to possess nuclear weapons and never have the intention to use them? Uh, I, theoretically, yes. And yeah. would that be moral? Uh, I'm I'm not sure it would be moral. Um, you wouldn't. You may not have the intent to kill innocent civilians. Um, that would have to be that no one has that intention. 
So not just the president, not just the higher-ups, but everybody's in on this, that we're never going to use them. No one has that intention. Um, yeah, theoretically, then they wouldn't have the objectionable conditional intention. But that's, as we know, kind of a fanciful situation. That's not going to reflect any version of reality uh, that we're aware of. Um, then you've got issues of, you know, even if you didn't intend ever to use them, nobody in the armed forces was going to use them. I mean, in reality, that would leak out and the other side would know you weren't going to use them. But then you've got the enormous cost uh, of building and maintaining these things, such that, uh, plus the risk of accidents or some crazy person loosing one off. Or, so you've got all those moral concerns as well, not just the wrongful intention. So I still think it would be very difficult to justify even that scenario. But I think the the, the, the analogy with the rifle is, is really not a particularly good one because, um, you know, you could, you could have a rifle um, and never intend to use it because, well, rifles can be, rifles can be used for hunting, shooting, fishing, you know. Nuclear weapons <laughs> are designed to obliterate cities and they're maintained at great expense for that purpose. So it's quite different from saying, well, I think that person got a gun. In fact, you could just put a notice in the window, gun inside, couldn't you? Uh, but that's the whole program of nuclear weapons has this core purpose. Its core meaning, its core goal is city destruction. Um, and in reality, as we know, that's accompanied by, it's energized by, it's maintained by an intent, conditional, to use them. So that's the real problem. And you don't think it's possible to realistically shift the focus from leveling cities to leveling exclusively military targets? Uh, I think that, I mean, theoretically, you know, so to take... Uh, my colleague's example of, you know, using them against the, an army on an island, you know, theoretically possible. So you could have maybe battlefield nuclear weapons. Yeah. But that's a, that's a world away from where we are. So it's not enough to justify holding on to them now. What we've got now aren't just battlefield nuclear weapons. These are just, you know, city flatteners. And we've probably got millions more than we need even for the purposes of flattening cities. So it's just totally out of control. It is totally um, designed uh, for Armageddon. All right, thank you. First of all, thank you for your talk. Okay. Very interesting. Thank I think you. So how can we get rid of ours if countries like North Korea keep theirs? It's a really good question. It's, it's one of the most difficult questions because uh, the short answer to it is that if we do uh, abandon our nuclear deterrent, that leaves us very, very exposed to other countries that have them. And to such an extent that it's not difficult to imagine other countries dominating the United States, taking over the United States. Um, so at the beginning of the, the great book by Finnis Boyle and Grise, uh, what they do, they start with this very hard-headed recognition of the political situation where they say, look, to deter Russian aggression, to deter uh, communist takeover of the West, we think this deterrence is necessary. So they're under no illusion what the cost of being moral could turn out to be. Basically a communist takeover of the West. But then they say, well, at the end of the day, the key thing is to be moral, whatever the cost. So the cost could be enormous. I think we should be under no illusion that if, you, if the United States and other countries uh, drop their nuclear deterrent policy, we could lose our liberties. We could lose our basic liberties and rights sooner or later uh, under the hegemony of another country that has nuclear weapons. And I suppose the short answer is, well, sometimes you have to pay a price for your 
moral positions. Another example you might give would be the, the immorality of torture. So torture is widely and rightly regarded as absolutely and always morally wrong. So countries have signed up to the UN Convention Against Torture. So the US is a signatory, the UK is a signatory. And we've said under no circumstances may it be carried out. But then you might say, well, the problem with that is, what if you need to torture somebody to find out where they planted the nuclear bomb in New York? The famous ticking time bomb, Ethics 101 case, which I do with my students. It means New York may be destroyed because you're not willing to torture. Sometimes you have to pay a big price for being moral, for leading the moral life. There are, but then that's, uh, and I start my classes often with uh, the Judgment at Nuremberg movie starring Spencer Tracy and uh, Burt Lancaster, where, where the West put on trial the Nazi leaders, those who hadn't killed themselves, and their henchmen, uh, and many of them, of course, were sentenced to death. And the particular uh, trial at Nuremberg that the film features was of German judges who had participated in ordering sterilizations and murders. And Spencer Tracy, you know, in his kind of judgment, says, yeah, well, you know, there is a great temptation to do immoral things to survive. And then he says, but to survive as what? What is a nation except the basic principles it believes in? So the bottom answer, I suppose, to the question is, you know, we ought to do the right thing, even if the heavens fall on us. That's the price of living a moral life. And it may cost us our freedom. It may cost us our lives. But the key thing is to remain True to one's moral principles. Thank you. Right. So, should we torture to save New York? No. Torture is always and everywhere wrong. It's another one of those moral absolutes. An absolute no-no. Never torture, even if it would save not just New York, but New York, Chicago, San Francisco, the whole world. You do not torture that person. Thank you also for your talk. Thank you. Um, my question was about like the law of proportionality. Yeah. And I'm asking mainly like proportional to what? Because like it seems like it, the law of proportionality, like if someone punched me, like it wouldn't be appropriate to pull a gun and shoot them. But like I could maybe punch them back and I'd be fine. Um, so like is it not like would it not be a similar proportional uh, scenario with the nuclear bombs? Uh, well, I think the, the best way to convey proportionality is, is an example like this. So that let's say you have an important military target, which is next to a school with hundreds of children in it. Um, you have to decide just how important this target is. So if we bomb the military base and it kills the kids, well, of course, killing the kids is, 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 is tragically sad and should be avoided if reasonably possible. But if, it's, if this is the German HQ and by taking it out, we end the war, then we can say, well, it's dreadful that the kids died, but we've ended the war. There's a clear difference in proportion, you know, it's better to end the war, save millions of lives, even though we know those children are going to die. And we should also ask ourselves, well, is there any other way of taking out the target without killing the kids? So yeah, maybe we'll wait till after school before we're gone. You know. So proportionality is a judgment call involving sometimes very difficult assessments of you know, prudential judgment. Um, but it's difficult for me to see how using nuclear weapons would, uh, would, would result in anything other than such enormous conflagration and death that, you know, to, to think of something that would outweigh that would be, would be difficult. I'm not saying impossible, but very difficult.
So like the response would be proportionate to what that country did to you, but like when considering the consequences, it would still be not good. I mean, it's, so when you say response, it's not, it can't be revenge. Right. Uh, it's got to be the use of force to neutralize unjust aggression. And one has to say, well, look, it, it, does this use of force, is it really that imperative? Because I know it's going to have these bad consequences. Of course, there's no bad consequences, no collateral damage, no problem. But often there is going to be some uh, collateral damage, some innocent people are going to get killed. And one just has to ask, uh, well, how many and how important is this objective? So it's, it's sometimes very difficult and sometimes very easy. But when you're talking about weapons that take out whole cities, obviously, uh, we're in a different ballgame. We're, we're talking about consequences, death and destruction on an unimaginable scale almost. So it, it's going to be very, very difficult to imagine a scenario where the principle of proportionality would be satisfied. But as I say, that's kind of a secondary argument because the main one is the nukes are designed just to kill everybody. That's the main objection. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to ask probably a more specific question as to the case that's happened. So like in the 90s, there was this case under the Clinton administration where the government and the post-Soviet <coughs> state with a lot of nukes they were sitting on. I want to say Kazakhstan, but don't quote me on that. Um, looked like it was at risk of falling. So the Clinton administration, I believe, either unilaterally or with the cooperation of the Russian Federation, went in and basically joined the nukes. But would you view that as a moral act? So they went in and did what to the nukes? Sorry? Uh, just kind of took them, brought them home, uh, covertly. All right, so would it be right to uh, take over a failing state to neutralize its nuclear weapons? Yes. Uh, in principle, I don't see why not. Uh, if there are dangerous weapons in a failing state that might, be, might fall into the wrong hands or might be used, then it seems to me... Uh, that not only is it uh, permissible, but maybe obligatory to go in and bring them into safekeeping. Um, of course, lots of Hollywood movies are based around this kind of scenario, aren't they? Where there's a failing state and some crazy leader is about to loose off or is thought to be about to. Um, and these movies provide great clips for my ethics classes, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Crimson Tide's one of them. I use that quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You spoke about how the bombing of cities in World War II increased the resolve of the enemy. Another example of this was an interview I saw with a Vietnam soldier, a man who fought in Vietnam War. And he said that the more civilian towns the United States took over, the more Viet Cong they actually produced. Right. And it led to the snowball effect. Do you believe that another reason why using nuclear weapons is immoral could be that it will create extra resolve in the enemy, which would drag out a war, leading to even more civilian death or potential death and destruction. So could the use of nuclear weapons uh, bolster the resolve of the enemy? Uh, I think yes. Um, although, I, you know, when you think of scenarios in which nuclear weapons are used, they, they, it could be just so devastating that maybe no one's going to be around <laughs> to, to have their resolve bolstered or otherwise. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's so difficult to imagine just one nuclear weapon being launched without provoking retaliation. And then we get this ping pong match, you know, with, uh, with these appalling weapons. So, I, but yes, I think by using immoral means, one does play into the hands of the opponent, just as with torture. So one of the problems with the torture that's been happening at the hands of the United States, and I think sometimes with the collaboration of other countries, is that uh, it gives enemies uh, pro a propaganda coup. You know, they say, look, there's America standing up for liberty and freedom and basic rights, and look what they're doing. You know, look at the, the photos from Abu Ghraib, remember, years ago, and stories from Guantanamo. So you do actually... Um, Play into the enemy's hands by acting immorally. Not, not just are you sullying your own hands, but you're strengthening their hand as well. Thank you. I have a question. Um, so I 
think a lot of this revolves around our like, concept of intention, like what it means to actually intend something. Um, and I'm thinking of like the quote from the US government, you know, where they're like, well, we're not intending to kill civilians as such, right? But you're kind of bringing up the point where it's like, in making a nuclear bomb, it's kind of like baked into the fact that you're making it, that you intend to kill a bunch of people with it. So like how, how do we think about intention, not just as this like pre-formulated stance that you could like say, like, like there's, there's a sense in which like that's true, right? Like people intend things and they say like, well, that was my intention, right? But there's this other sense in which like, sometimes it seems like our actions kind of have intention baked into them that we don't we can kind of like obfuscate the issue by saying our intention, but really like kind of obvious that this is part of your intention. Does that make sense? Totally so, so the question is, um, what do we mean by intention? Do we not easily obfuscate our intentions sometimes? Yeah, it yeah. seems like they're like, you can like kind of obviously intend something, but like say, well, that wasn't like my intention, right? But like, was it? Well, I so I think the short answer is that intention has this ordinary English mean, meaning, doesn't it, of purpose or goal, aim or objective. That's what one intends as a means or as an end. And so we have to ask, what is the intention behind the policy of nuclear deterrence? And if it is to destroy innocent civilians, then it's an immoral intention. So I don't think, personally, this is a, one of those scenarios where the concept of intention raises particular problems. I think this is a pretty clear case where these weapons almost, their intention almost speaks for themselves. I mean, just look at them. <laughs> what are they designed to do? Why were they built like this? Why with such enormous destructive power? I mean, uh, the weapons almost speak for themselves. Although, of course, intentions are, are human, uh, as it were, states of mind. But... I think the two go together. We've built them with this enormous destructive power because we are prepared to destroy entire cities, maybe entire countries, you know. So I, I think what, what the intention here is, is, is reasonably clear. And there's plenty of documentation, you know, showing that this is the policy. You know, it's not kind of we're pretending or we're not sure it is or, you know, oops, we destroyed the whole city. We didn't mean to. No, it's... Uh, I think it's pretty clear what our, the policies of countries with nuclear weapons are. One doesn't have to be a mind reader. And therefore, they breach the principle of uh, distinction. Thank you so much for your questions. Great. Thank you all for those questions. Thank you very much.